Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. I've decided to find a comfort meal for my next book. And this is the next book, so you already know I found the comfort meal. Um, I've been reading the the classics that are hood classics to me. Um, I haven't found a book that I love that I knew was going to be something for the hood. I have a couple of them. I might read them later. Um, we'll see. Um, but the good classics are generally just books that I believe are great. And this one is um, of no exception to that. Dean Koontz is up on my list of favorite writers. Now, um, not all of his books. Some of them hit, some don't. But the books that hit me hit me like a ton of bricks. And there's two books, uh, maybe more, if I really stop and think about it, that are absolutely on my list uh, to read to y'all. But um, this first book, I actually held off from reading it because I was worried that... Um, some of the parts might be too dry and might lose y'all, but I'm not worried about that anymore. I know how good of a book this is, and I know that y'all will fall in love with it just like I did. Um, and if you don't fall in love with the way that I did, I'll still have something to listen to when I'm riding around. Um, when I'm driving to tournaments, when I'm by myself, I'll be able to fall back on this book and and let me read myself into a happy place. So, with no further ado, the Dean Koontz classic. I mean, I love this book so much. From the corner of his eye. Now, I do want to warn you, this one will probably be a long series. It's a pretty big book. Not Harry Potter big, but it's close. Let's go. Chapter 1. Bartholomew Lampion was blinded at the age of three when surgeons reluctantly removed his eyes to save him from a fast-spreading cancer. But although eyeless, Barty regained his sight when he was 13. This sudden ascent from a decade of darkness into the glory of light was not brought about by the hands of a holy healer. No celestial trumpets announced the restoration of his vision. Just none announced his birth. A roller coaster has something to do with his recovery, as did a seagull, and you can't discount the importance of Barty's profound desire to make his mother proud of him before her second death. The first time she died was when Barty was born, January 6, 1965. In Bright Beach, California, most residents spoke of Barty's mother, Agnes Lampion, also known as a pie lady, with affection. She lived for others her heart tuned to their anguish and their needs. In this materialistic world, her selflessness was cause for suspicion amongst those whose blood was as rich with cynicism as with iron. Even such hard souls, however, admitted that the pie lady had countless admirers and no enemies. The man who tore the Lampian family's world apart on the night of Barty's birth had not been her enemy. He was a stranger, but the chain of his destiny shared a link with theirs. Chapter 2. January 6, 1965, shortly after 8 o'clock in the morning, Agnes had entered first stage labor while making six blueberry pies. 
This wasn't false labor again, because the pains extended around her entire back and across her abdomen, rather than being limited to the lower abdomen and groin. The spasms were worse when she walked than when she stood still or sat down. Another sign of the real thing. Her discomfort wasn't severe. The contractions were regular, but widely separated. She refused to be admitted to the hospital until she completed the day's scheduled tasks. For a woman in her first pregnancy, this stage of labor lasts 12 hours on average. Agnes believed herself to be average in every regard, as comfortably ordinary as the gray jogging suit with the drawstring waist that she wore to accommodate her baby stretch physique. Therefore, she was confident that she wouldn't proceed to second stage labor much sooner than 10 o'clock in the evening. Joe, her husband, wanted to rush her to the hospital long before noon. After packing his wife's suitcase and throwing it in the car, he canceled his appointments and loitered in her vicinity, although he was careful to always stay one room away from her, lest she become annoyed by his smothering concern and chase him out of the house. Each time that he heard Agnes groan softly or inhale with a hiss of pain, he tried to time her contractions. He spent so much time studying his wristwatch that when he glanced at his face in the foyer mirror, he expected to see the faint reflection of a sweeping second hand clocking around and around in his eyes. Joe was a worrier, although he didn't look like one. Tall, strong, he could have subbed for Samson, pulling down pillars and collapsing roofs upon the Philistines. He was gentle by nature, however, and lacked the arrogance and reckless confidence of many men his size. Although happy, even jolly, he believed that he had been too richly blessed with fortune, friends, and family. Surely, one day fate would make adjustments to his brimming accounts. He wasn't wealthy, merely comfortable, but he never worried about losing his money because he could always earn more through hard work and diligence. Instead, on restless nights, he was kept sleepless by the quiet dread of losing those he loved. Life was like the ice on an early winter pond, more fragile than it appeared to be, riddled by hidden fractures, what a cold darkness below. Besides, to Joe Lampion, Agnes was not in any way average, regardless of what she might think. She was glorious, unique. He didn't put her on a pedestal, because a mere pedestal didn't raise her as high as she deserved to be raised. If he ever lost her, he would be lost too. Throughout the morning, Joe Lampion brooded about every known medical complication associated with childbirth. He had learned more than he needed to know on this subject months earlier from a thick medical reference work that had raised the hair on the back of his neck more effectively and more often than any thriller he had ever read. At 12.50, unable to purge his mind of textbook descriptions of antepartum hemorrhage, postpartum hemorrhage, and violent ecleptic convulsions, he burst through the swinging door into the kitchen and announced, All right, Aggie, enough. We've waited long enough. At the breakfast table, she was writing notes in the gift cards that would accompany the six blueberry pies she had baked that morning. I feel fine, Joey. Other than Aggie, no one called him Joey. He was six foot three, 230 pounds, with a stone quarry face that was all slabs and crags, fearsome until he spoke in his low musical voice or until you noticed the kindness in his eyes. We're going to the hospital now, he insisted, looming over her at the table. No, dear. Not yet. Even though Aggie was just five foot three and minus the pounds of her unborn child less than half Joey's weight, 
She could not have been lifted out that chair against her will, even if he had brought with him a power winch and the will to use it. In any confrontation with Aggie, Joy was always Samson shorn, not Samson pre-haircut. With a glower that would have convinced a rattlesnake to uncoil and lie a supine as an earthworm, Joey said, Please? I have pie notes to write, so Edom can make deliveries for me in the morning. There's only one delivery I'm worried about. Well, I'm worried about seven. Six pies and one baby. You and your pies, he said with frustration. You and your worrying, she countered, favoring him with a smile that affected his heart as sun did butter. He sighed, the notes, and then we go. The notes, then Maria comes for her English lesson, and then we go. You're in no condition to give an English lesson. Teaching English does not require heavy lifting, dear. She did not pause in her note writing when she spoke to him, and he watched the elegantly formed script stream from the tip of her ballpoint pen as though she were but a conduit that carried the words from a higher source. Finally, Joey leaned across the table, and Aggie looked up at him through the great silent fall of his shadow, her green eyes shining in the shade that he cast. He lowered his raw granite face for her porcelain features, and as if yearning to be shattered, she raised up slightly to meet his kiss. Love you is all, he said, and the helplessness in his voice exasperated him. Is all, she kissed him again, is everything. So what do I do to keep from going crazy? The doorbell rang. Answer that, she suggested. Chapter 3 The primeval forest of the Oregon coast raised a great green cathedral across the hills, and the land was as hushed as any place of worship. High above, glimpsed between the emerald spires, a hawk glided in a widening gyre, dark-feathered angel with a taste for blood. Here at ground level, no wildlife stirred, and the momentous day was breathless. Luminous veils of fog lay still motionless in the deeper hollows where the departed night had discarded them. The only sounds were the crunch of crisp evergreen needles underfoot and the rhythmic breathing of experienced hikers. At nine o'clock that morning, Junior Kane and his bride Naomi had parked their Chevy Suburban along an unpaved fire road and headed north on foot, along deer trails and other natural pathways into the shadowy vastness. Even by noon, the sun penetrated only in narrow shafts to brighten most of the woods by indirection. When Junior was in the lead, he occasionally drew far enough ahead of Naomi to pause and turn and watch her as she approached him. Her golden hair shimmered always bright, in sunshine or shadow, and her face was that perfection of which adolescent boys dreamed, for which grown men sacrificed honor and surrendered fortune. Sometimes Naomi led, following her, Junior was so enraptured by her lithe form that he was aware of little else, oblivious to the green vaults, the columnar trunks, the lush ferns, and the flourishing rhododendrons. Although Naomi's beauty might alone have captured his heart, he was equally entranced by her grace, her agility, her strength, and by the determination with which she conquered the steepest slopes and the most forbiddingly stony terrain. She approached all of life, not just hiking, with enthusiasm, passion, intelligence, courage. They had been married 14 months, yet daily his love grew stronger. He was only 23, and sometimes it seemed that one day his heart would be too small to contain his feelings for her. Other men had pursued Naomi, 
some better looking than Junior, many smarter, virtually all of them richer. Yet Naomi had wanted only him, not for what he owned or might one day acquire, but because she claimed to see in him a shining soul. Junior was a physical therapist, and a good one, working mostly with accident and stroke victims who were struggling to regain lost physical function. He would never lack for meaningful work, but he would never own a mansion on a hill. Fortunately, Naomi's tastes were simple. She preferred beer to champagne, shunned diamonds, and didn't care if she ever saw Paris. She loved nature, walks in the rain, the beach, good books. Hiking, she often sang softly when the trail was easy. Two of her favorite tunes were Somewhere Over the Rainbow and What a Wonderful World. Her voice was as pure as the spring water and as warm as sunshine. Junior often encouraged her to sing, for in her song he heard a love of life, an infectious joy that lifted him. Because this January day was unseasonably warm in the 60s and because they were too close to the coast to be in a snow zone at any altitude, they wore shorts and t-shirts. The pleasant heat of exertion, the sweet ache of well-tested muscles, the forced air scented with pine, the tautness and grace of Naomi's bare legs, her sweet song. This was what paradise might be like if paradise existed. On a day hike, not intending to camp overnight, they carried light packs, a first aid kit, drinking water, lunch, and thus made good time. Shortly after noon, they came to a narrow break in the forest and stepped into the final coil of the serpentine fire road, which had arrived at this point by a route different from theirs. They followed the dirt track to the summit, where it terminated at a fire tower that was indicated on their map by a red triangle. The tower stood on a broad ridge line, a formidable structure of chrysote-soaked timbers, 40 feet on a side at the base. The tower tapered as it rose, though an open-view deck flared out from the top. In the center of the deck was an enclosed observation post with large windows. The soil was stony and alkaline here, so the most impressive trees were only a hundred feet tall, little more than half the size of many of the rainforest behemoths that thrived on lower slopes. At 150 feet, the tower rose high above them. The switchback stairs were in the center of the open framework rising under the tower rather than circling the exterior. Aside from a few sagging threads and loose balusters, the staircase was in good condition, yet Junior became uneasy when he was just two flights off the ground. He wasn't able to pinpoint the cause of his concern, but instinct told him to be wary. Because the autumn and winter had been rainy, the fire danger was low, and the tower was not currently manned. In addition to its more serious function, the structure also serves as an observation platform open to any of the public determined enough to reach it. The steps creaked. Their footfalls echoed hollowly through this half-enclosed space, as did their heavy breathing. None of these sounds was a reason for alarm, and yet, as Junior ascended behind Naomi, the wedge-shaped open spaces between the crisscross framing beams grew narrower, allowing ever less daylight to penetrate. The space under the tower platform became gloomy, though never dark enough to require a flashlight. The penetrating odor of chrysote was now laced with the musty smell of mold or fungus, neither of which should have been thriving in the presence of timber treated with such pungent wood tar. Junior paused and peered down the stairs, through the trestle work of shadows, half expecting to discover someone stealthily climbing behind them. As far as he could see, they were not being stalked. Only spiders kept them company. 
No one had come this way in weeks, if not months, and repeatedly they encountered daunting webs of grand design. Like the cold and fragile ectoplasm of summoned spirits, the gossamer architecture pressed against their faces, and so much of it clung tenaciously to their clothes that even in the gloom, they began to look like the risen dead in tattered grave cloth. As the diameter of the tower shrank, the steps came in shorter and steeper flights, finally ending at a landing only eight or nine feet below the floor of the observation platform. From here, a ladder led up to an open trap door. When Junior followed his agile wife to the top of the ladder and then through the trap onto the observation deck, he would have been knocked breathless by the view if he had not already been left gasping by the climb. From here, 15 stories above the highest point of the ridge and 5 stories above the tallest trees, they saw a green sea of needled waves rising in eternal ranks to the misty east and descending in timeless sets towards the real sea a few miles to the west. Oh, Eni, she exclaimed. It's spectacular. Eni was her pet name for him. She didn't want to call him Junior, as did everyone else, and he didn't allow anyone to call him Enoch, which was his real name. Enoch Kane Jr. Well, everyone had a cross to bear. At least he hadn't been born with a hump in the third eye. After wiping the cobwebs off each other and rinsing their hands with bottled water, they ate lunch. Cheese sandwiches and a little dried fruit. While they ate, they circled the observation deck more than once, relishing the magnificent vistas. During the second circuit, Naomi put her hand against the railing and discovered that some of the supports were rotten. She didn't lean her weight against the handrail and wasn't in any danger of falling. The picket sagged outward. One of them began to crack and Naomi immediately retreated from the edge of the platform to safety. Nevertheless, Junior was so unnerved that he wanted to leave the tower at once and finish their lunch on solid ground. He was trembling, and the dryness of his mouth had nothing to do with the cheese. Quavering, his voice, and strange to his own ear. I... I almost lost you. Oh, Eni, it wasn't even close. Too close. Too close. Climbing the tower, he hadn't broken out in a sweat, but now he felt perspiration prickle his brow. Naomi smiled. She used her paper towel to dab at his damp forehead. You're sweet. I love you too. He held her tightly. She felt so good in his arms. Precious. Let's go down, he insisted. Slipping free of his embrace, taking a bite of her sandwich, managing to be beautiful even while talking with her mouth full, she said, Well, of course. We can't go down until we see how bad the problem is. What problem? The railing. Maybe that's the only dangerous section, but maybe the whole thing's rotten. We have to know the extent of the problem when we get back to civilization and call the Forest Service to report this. Why can't we just call and let them check out the rest of this? Grinning, she pinched his left earlobe and tugged on it. Ding dong. Anyone home? I'm taking a poll to see who knows the meaning of civic responsibility. He frowned, making the phone calls responsible enough. The more information we have, the more credible we'll sound. And the more credible we sound, the less likely they are to think we're just kids jerking their chain. This is nuts. Brazil or Hazel? What? If it's nuts, I don't recognize the variety. Having finished her sandwich, she licked her fingers. Think about it, Eni. What if some family comes up here with their kids? He could never deny her anything she wanted, in part because she rarely wanted anything for herself. 
The platform encircling the enclosed observation post was about 10 feet wide. It seemed solid and safe underfoot. Structural problems were restricted to the balustrade. All right, he reluctantly agreed, but I'll check the railing and you stay back by the wall where it's safe. Lowering her voice and speaking in a Neanderthalic grunt, she said, Man, fight fierce tiger. Woman, watch. That's the natural order of things. Still grunting. Man say it's natural order. To woman, it's just entertainment. Always happy to amuse, ma'am. As Junior followed to the balustrade, gingerly testing it, Naomi stayed behind him. Be careful, Eni. The weathered railing cap was rough under his hand. He was more concerned about splinters than about falling. He remained at arm's length from the edge of the platform, moving slowly, repeatedly shaking the railing, searching for loose or rotten pickets. In a couple of minutes, they completed a full circuit of the platform, returning to the spot where Naomi had discovered the rotted wood. This is the only point of weakness in the railing. Satisfied? He asked. Let's go down. Sure, but let's finish lunch first. She had taken a bag of dried apricots from her backpack. We ought to go down, he pressed. Shaking two apricots from a bag into his hand, I'm not done with this view. Don't be a killjoy, Eni. We know it's safe now. Okay, he surrendered. But don't lean on the railing even where we know it's all right. You make someone a wonderful mother. Yeah, but I'd have trouble with the breastfeeding. They circled the platform again, pausing every few steps to gaze at the spectacular panorama, and Junior's tension quickly ebbed. Naomi's company, as always, was tranquilizing. She fed him an apricot. He was reminded of their wedding reception when they fed slivers of cake to each other. Life with Naomi was a perpetual honeymoon. Eventually, they returned yet again to the section of the railing that had almost collapsed under her hands. Junior shoved Naomi so hard that she was almost lifted off her feet. Her eyes flared wide and a half-chewed wad of apricot fell from her gaping mouth. She crashed backwards into the weak section of the railing. For an instant, Junior thought the railing might hold, but the picket splintered, the handrail cracked, and Naomi pitched backwards off the view deck in a clatter of rotting wood. She was so surprised that she didn't begin to scream until she must have been a third of the way through her long fall. Junior didn't hear her hit bottom but the abrupt cessation of the screen confirmed impact. He was astonished himself. He hadn't realized he was capable of cold-blooded murder, especially on the spur of the moment, with no time to analyze the risk and the potential benefits of such a drastic act. After catching his breath and coming to grips with his amazing audacity, Junior moved along the platform, past a broken-away railing. From a secure position, he leaned out and peered down. She was so tiny... A pale spot on the dark grass and stone. On her back, one leg bent under her at an impossible angle. Right arm at her side, left arm flung out as if she were waving. A radiant nimbus of golden hair fanned around her head. He loved her so much that he couldn't bear to look at her. He turned away from the railing, crossed the platform, and sat with his back against the wall at the lookout station. For a while, he wept uncontrollably. Losing Naomi, he had lost more than a wife. More than a friend and lover. More than a soulmate. He had lost a part of his own physical being. He was hollow inside, as though the very meat and bone at the core of him had been torn out and replaced by a void, black and cold. Horror and despair racked him, and he was tormented by thoughts of self-destruction. But then, he felt better. Not good, but definitely better. Naomi had dropped a bag of dried apricots before she plummeted from the tower. 
He crawled to it, extracted a piece of fruit, and chewed slowly, savoring the morsel. Sweet. Eventually, he squirmed on his belly to the gap in the railing, where he gazed straight down at his lost love far below. She was in precisely the same position as when he had first looked. Of course, he hadn't expected her to be dancing. A 15-story fall all but certainly quashed the urge to boogie. From this height, he couldn't see any blood. He was sure that some blood must have been spilled. The air was still, no breeze whatsoever. The sentinel firs and pines stood as motionless as those mysterious stone heads that faced the sea on Easter Island. Naomi dead, so alive only moments ago, now gone, unthinkable. The sky was the delft blue of a tea set that his mother had owned. Mounds of clouds to the east, like clotted cream, buttery the sun. Hungry, he ate another apricot. No hawks above, no visible movement anywhere in this fastness. Below, Naomi's still dead. How strange life is, how fragile. You never know what stunning development lies around the next corner. Junior's shock had given way to a profound sense of wonder. For most of his young life, he had understood that the world was deeply mysterious, ruled by fate. Now, because of this tragedy, he realized the human mind and heart were no less enigmatic than the rest of creation. Who would have thought that Junior Kane was capable of such a sudden, violent act as this? Not Naomi. Not Junior himself, in fact. How passionately he had loved this woman. How fiercely he had cherished her. He had thought he couldn't live without her. He had been wrong. Naomi down there, still very dead, and him up here alive. His brief suicidal impulse had passed, and now he knew that he would get through this tragedy somehow, that the pain would eventually subside, that the sharp sense of loss would be dulled by time. And eventually, he might even love someone again. Indeed, in spite of his grief and anguish, he regarded the future with more optimism, interest, and excitement than he had felt in a long time. If he was capable of this, then he was different from the man he had always imagined himself to be. More complex. More dynamic. Wow. He sighed. Tempting as it was to lie here, gazing down at dead Naomi, daydreaming about a bolder and more colorful future than any that he had previously imagined, he had much to accomplish before the afternoon was done. His life was going to be busy for a while. Chapter 4 through a rose pattern glasswork in the front door, as the bell rang again, Joe saw Maria Gonzalez, tinted red here and green there, beveled in some places and cracked in others, her face a mosaic of petal and leaf shapes. When Joey opened the door, Maria half bowed her head, kept her eyes lowered and said, I must be Maria Gonzalez. Yes, Maria, I know who you are. He was, as ever, charmed by her shyness and by her brave struggle with English. Although Joey stepped back and held open the door wide, Maria remained on the porch. I will to see Miss Agnes. Yes, that's right. Please come in. She still hesitated. For the English. She has plenty of that. More than I can usually cope with. Maria frowned, not yet proficient enough in her new language to understand his joke. Afraid that she would think he was teasing or even mocking her, Joe gathered considerable earnestness into his voice. Maria, please, come in. Mikasa, a sukasa. She glanced at him, then quickly looked away. Her timidity was only partly due to shyness. Another part of it was cultural. 
She was of that class in Mexico that never made direct eye contact with anyone that might be considered a patron. He wanted to tell her that this was America, where no one was required to bow to anyone else, where one station at birth was not a prison, but an open door, a starting point. This was always the land of tomorrow. Considering Joe's great size, his rough face, and his tendency to glower when he encountered injustice or its effects, anything he said to Maria about her excessive self-effacement might seem to be argumentative. He didn't want to have to return to the kitchen to inform Aggie that he had frightened away her student. For an awkward moment, he thought that they might remain at this impasse, Maria staring at her feet, Joe gazing down at the top of her humbled head, until some angel blew the horn of judgment and the dead rose from their graves of glory. Then, an invisible dog, in the form of a sudden breeze, scampered across the porch, lashing Maria with its tail. It sniffed curiously at the threshold and, panting, entered the house, bringing the small brown woman after it, as though she held it on a leash. Closing the door, Joe said, Aggie's in the kitchen. Maria inspected the foyer carpet as intently as she examined the floor of the porch. You pleased to tell her I'm Maria? Just go on back to the kitchen. She's waiting for you. The kitchen? On myself? Excuse me? To the kitchen on myself? By yourself, he corrected, smiling as he got her meeting. Yes, of course, you know where it is. Maria nodded, crossed the foyer into the living room archway, turned and dared to meet his eyes briefly. Thank you. As he watched her move through the living room and disappear into the dining room, Joe didn't at first grasp why she had thanked him. Then he realized she was grateful that he trusted her not to steal when unaccompanied. Evidently, she was accustomed to being an object of suspicion, not because she was unreliable, but simply because she was Marina Elena Gonzalez, who had traveled north from Hermosillo, Mexico, in search of a better life. Although saddened by this reminder of the stupidity and meanness of the world, Joe refused to dwell on negative thoughts. Their firstborn was soon to arrive, and years from now, he wanted to be able to recall this day as a shining time, characterized entirely by sweet, if nervous, anticipation and by the joy of the birth. In the living room, he sat in his favorite armchair and tried to read Your Only Live Twice, the latest novel about James Bond. He couldn't relate to the story. Bond had survived 10,000 threats and vanquished villains by the hundreds but he didn't know anything about the complications that could transform ordinary labor into a mortal trial for mother and baby. Chapter 5 Down, down, through the shadows and the shredded spider webs, down through the astringent chrysote stink and the underlying foulness of black mold, Junior descended the tower stairs with utmost caution. If he tripped on a loose tread and fell and broke a leg, he might lie here for days, dying of thirst or infection or of exposure if the weather turned cooler, tormented by whatever predators found him helpless in the night. Hiking into the wilds alone was never wise. He always relied on the buddy system, sharing the risk, but his buddy had been Naomi, and she wasn't here for him anymore. When he was all the way down, when he was out from under the tower, he hurried towards the dirt lane. The car was hours away by the challenging overhand route they had taken to get there, but maybe half an hour, at most 45 minutes away if he returned by the fire road. After only a few steps, Junior halted. He dared not bring the authorities back to this ridgetop only to discover that poor Naomi, though critically injured, was still clinging to life. 150 feet, approximately 15 stories, was not a fall that anyone could be expected to survive. On the other hand, miracles do occasionally happen. 
Not miracles in the sense of gods and angels and saints goofing around in human affairs. Junior didn't believe in such nonsense. But amazing singularities do happen, he muttered, because he had a relentlessly mathematical scientific view of existence, which allowed for many astounding anomalies, for mysteries of astonishing mechanical effect, but which provided no room for the supernatural. With more trepidation than seemed reasonable, he circled the base of the tower. Tall grass and weeds tickled his bare calves. At this season, no insects were buzzing, no gnats trying to sip at the sweat on his brow. Slowly, warily, he approached the crumpled form of his fallen wife. In 14 months of marriage, Naomi never raised her voice to him, was never cross with him. She never looked for a fault in a person that she could find a virtue. And she was the type of person who could find a virtue in everyone but child molesters and, well, and murderers. He dreaded finding her still alive, because for the first time in their relationship, she would surely be filled with reproach. She would no doubt have harsh, perhaps bitter words for him, and even if he could quickly silence her, his lovely memories of their marriage would be tarnished forever. Henceforth, every time he thought of his gold Naomi, he would hear her shrill accusations, see her beautiful face contorted and made ugly by anger. How sad it would be to have so many cherished recollections spoiled forever. He rounded the northwest corner of the tower and saw Naomi lying where he expected her to be. Not sitting up and brushing the pine needles out of her hair, just lying twisted and still. Nevertheless, he halted, reluctant to go closer. He studied her from a safe distance, squinting in the bright sunlight, alert for the slightest twitch. In the windless, bugless, lifeless silence, he listened, half expecting her to take up one of her favorite songs, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, or What a Wonderful World. But in a thin, crushed, tuneless voice choked with blood and rattling with broken cartilage. He was working himself into a state, and for no good reason. She was almost certainly dead, but he had to be sure, and to be sure, he had to take a closer look. No way around it. A quick look, and then away, away, into an eventful and interesting future. As soon as he stepped closer, he knew why he had been reluctant to approach Naomi. He had been afraid that her beautiful face would be hideously disfigured, torn, and crushed. Junior was squeamish. He didn't like war movies or mystery flicks in which people were shot or stabbed or even discreetly poisoned because they always had to show you the body as if you couldn't just take their word for it that someone had been killed and just get on with the plot. He preferred love stories and comedies. He once picked up a Mickey Spillane thriller and been sickened by the relentless violence. He had almost been unable to finish the book, but he considered it a character flaw not to complete a project that one had begun, even if the task was to read a repulsively bloody novel. In war movies and thrillers, he immensely enjoyed the action. The action didn't trouble him. He was disturbed by the aftermath. Too many movie makers and novelists were intent on showing you the aftermath, as if that were as important as the story itself. The entertaining part, however, was the movement, the action, not the consequences. If you had a runaway train scene, and the train hit a busload of nuns at a crossing, smashing it the hell out of the way and roaring on... You wanted to follow that train, not go back and see what had happened to the luckless nuns. Dead or alive, the nuns were history once the damn bus was slammed off the tracks, and what mattered was a train. Not consequences, but momentum. Here, on this sunny ridge in Oregon, miles from any train and farther still from any nuns, Junior applied this artistic insight to his own situation, overcame his squeamishness, and regained some momentum of his own. He approached his fallen wife, stood over her, 
and stared down into her fixed eyes as he said, Naomi? He didn't know why he had spoken her name, because the first sight of her face, he was certain that she was dead. He detected a note of melancholy in his voice, and he supposed that he already was missing her. If her eyes had shifted focus in response to his voice, if she had blinked to acknowledge him, Junior might not have been entirely displeased, depending on her condition. Paralyzed from the neck down and posing no physical threat, brain damaged to the extent that she couldn't speak or write, or in any other way convey to the police what had happened to her, yet with her beauty largely intact, she might still have been able to enrich his life in many ways. Under the right circumstances, with sweet Naomi as gloriously attractive as ever but as pliable and unjudgmental as a doll, Junior might have been willing to give her a home and care. Talk about action without consequences. She was, however, as dead as a toad in the wake of a Mack truck and of no more interest to him now than would be a busload of train smack nuns. Remarkably, her face was nearly as stunning as ever. She had landed face up, so the damage was largely to her spine and the back of her head. Junior didn't want to think about what her posterior cranium might look like. Happily, her cascading golden hair hid the truth. Her facial features were ever so slightly distorted, which suggested the greater ruin underneath, but the result was neither sad nor grotesque. Indeed, the distortion gave her the lopsided, perky, and altogether appealing grin of mischievous gamine. Lips parted as though she had just said something wonderfully witty. He was puzzled that so few traces of gore stained her rocky bed until he realized that she had died instantly upon impact. Stopped so abruptly, her heart hadn't pumped blood out of her wounds. He knelt beside her and gently touched her face. Her skin was still warm. Ever the sentimentalist, Junior kissed her goodbye. Only once. Lingering, but only once. And with no tongue involved. Then he returned to the fire road and headed south along that serpentine dirt track in a fast walk. When he reached the first turn of the narrow road, he paused and looked back towards the top of the ridge. The high tower imprinted its ominous black geometry across the sky. The surrounding forest seemed to shrink from it, as if nature chose no longer to embrace the structure. Above the tower and to one side, three crows had appeared as though by spontaneous generation. They circled over the spot where Naomi lay like sleeping beauty, kissed but unawakened. Crows are carrion eaters. Reminding himself that action was what mattered, not aftermath, Junior Kane resumed his journey down the fire road. He moved at an easy jog now instead of a fast walk, chanting aloud in the way the Marines chanted when they ran in training groups. But because he did not know any Marine chants, he grunted the words to somewhere over the rainbow, without melody, roughly in time with his footfalls, on his way to neither the halls of Montezuma nor the shores of Tripoli, but to a future that now promised to be one of exceptional experience and unending surprises. Chapter 6 Except for the effects of pregnancy, Agnes was petite, and Maria Elena Gonzalez was even smaller. Yet, as they sat catacornered at each other at the kitchen table, young women from far different worlds but remarkably similar personalities. Their clash of wills over payment for the English lessons was nearly as monumental as the two tectonic plates grinding together deep under the California coast. Maria was determined to pay with cash or services. Agnes insisted that the lessons were an act of friendship, with no compensation required. I won't steal the adjustments of a friend, Maria proclaimed. You're not taking advantage of me, dear. I'm getting so much pleasure from teaching you, seeing you improve that I ought to be paying you. 
Maria closed her large ebony eyes and drew a deep breath, moving her lips without making a sound, reviewing something important that she wanted to say correctly. She opened her eyes. I'm thanking the Virgin and Jesus every night that you have been within my life. That's so sweet, Maria. But I'm buying the English, she said firmly, sliding three $1 bills across the table. Three dollars was six dozen eggs or twelve loaves of bread, and Agnes was never going to take food out of the mouths of a poor woman and her children. She pushed the currency across the table to Maria. Jaws clenched, lips pressed tightly together, eyes narrowed. Maria shoved the money towards Agnes. Ignoring the offer payment, Agnes opened a lesson book. Maria swiveled sideways in her chair, turning away from the three bucks and the book. Glaring at the back of her friend's head, Agnes said, You're impossible. Wrong. Maria Elena Gonzalez is real. That's not what I meant, and you know it. Don't know nothing. I be stupid Mexican woman. Stupid is the last thing you are. Always to be stupid now, always with my evil English. Bad English. Your English isn't evil. It's just bad. Then you teach. Not for money. Not for free. For a few minutes, they sat there unmoving. Maria with her back to the table, Agnes staring in frustration at the nape of Maria's neck and trying to will her to come face to face again, to be reasonable. At last, Agnes got to her feet. A mild contraction tightened the cincture of pain around her back and belly, and she leaned against the table until the misery passed. Without a word, she poured a cup of coffee and set it before Maria. She put a homemade raisin scone on the plate and placed it beside the coffee. Maria sipped the coffee while sitting sideways in her chair, still turned away from the three worn dollar bills. Agnes left the kitchen by way of the hall, through the swinging door, rather than through the dining room, and when she passed the living room archway, Joey exploded out of his armchair, dropping the book he had been reading. It's not time, she said, proceeding to the stairs. What if you're wrong? Trust me, Joey. I'll be the first to know. As Agnes ascended, Joey hurried into the foyer behind her and said, where are you going? Upstairs, silly. What are you going to do? Destroy some clothes. Oh. She fetched a pair of cuticle scissors from the master bathroom, plucked a red blouse from her closet, and sat on the edge of the bed. Carefully snipping threads with her tiny pointed blades, she turned the blouse inside out and unraveled a lot of stitches just under the shoulder yoke, ruining the front shearing. From Joy's closet, she extracted an old blue blazer that he seldom wore anymore. The lining was sagging, worn, and half-rotten. She tore it. With the small scissors, she opened the shoulder seam from the inside. To the growing pile of ruin, she added one of Joey's cardigan sweaters, after popping loose one bone button and almost completely detaching a sewn-on patch pocket. A pair of knockabout khaki pants quickly clip open the seat seam, cut the corner of the wallet pocket, then rip it with both hands, snip loose some stitching, and half-detach the cuff on the left leg. She damaged more of Joey's things than her own solely because he was such a big, dear giant, which made it easier to believe that he was constantly bursting out of his clothes. Downstairs again, as Agnes reached the foot of the stairs, she began to worry that she had done too thorough a job on the khakis and that the extent of the damage would raise suspicions. Seeing her, Joey leapt up from his armchair again. He managed to hold on to his book this time, but he stumbled into the footstool and nearly lost his balance. When did you have that run-in with the dog? She asked. Bewildered, he said. What dog? Was it yesterday or, or was it the day before? Dog? 
There was no dog. Shaking the ravaged khakis at him, she said, Then what made such a mess of these? He stared glumly at the khakis. Although they were old pants, they were a favorite pair when he was puttering around the house on weekends. Oh, he said, that dog. It's a miracle you weren't bitten. Thank God, he said, I had a shovel. You didn't hit the poor dog with a shovel, she asked with mock dismay. Well, wasn't it attacking me? But it was only a miniature collie. He frowned. I thought it was a big dog. No, no, dear, it was Little Muffin from next door. A big dog certainly would have torn up both you and the pants. We've got to have a credible story. Muffin seems like such a nice little dog. But the breed is nervous, dear. What a nervous breed, you just never know, do you? I guess not. Nevertheless, even if Muffin assaulted you, she's otherwise such a sweet little thing. What would Maria think of you if you told her you'd smash poor Muffin with a shovel? I was fighting for my life, wasn't I? She'll think you're cruel. I didn't say I hit the dog. Smiling, cocking her head, Agnes regarded him with amused expectation. Scowling, Joey stared at the floor in puzzlement, shifted his way from one foot to the other, sighed, turned his attention to the ceiling, and shifted his weight again for all the world like a trained bear that couldn't quite remember how to perform its next trick. Finally, he said, What I did was grab the shovel, dig a hole really fast, and bury Muffin in it up to her neck, just until she calmed down. That's your story, huh? And I'm sticking to it. Well, then you're lucky that Maria's English is so evil. He said, Couldn't you just take her money? Sure. Or why don't I pull a Rumpelstiltskin and demand one of her children for payment? I liked those pants. As she turned away from him and continued along the hall towards the kitchen, Agnes said they'll be good as new when she's mended them. Behind her, he said, And is that my great cardigan? What did it do to my cardigan? If you don't hush, I'll set it on fire. In the kitchen, Maria was nibbling at the raisin scone. Agnes dropped the damaged apparel on one of the breakfast table chairs. After carefully wiping her fingers on a paper napkin, Maria examined the garments with interest. She earned her living as a seamstress at Bright Beach Dry Cleaners. At the sight of each rent, popped button, and split seam, she clucked her tongue. Agnes said, Joey is so hard on his clothes. Men, Maria commiserated. Rico, her own husband, a drunkard and a gambler, had run off with another woman, abandoning Maria and their two small daughters. No doubt, he had departed in a spotlessly clean, sharply pressed, perfectly mended ensemble. The seamstress held up the khakis and raised her eyebrows. Settling into a chair at the table, Agnes said, He was attacked by a dog. Maria's eyes widened. Pitbull? German sheep? Miniature collie. What is like such a dog? Muffin, you know, from next door. Little Muffin do this? It's a nervous breed. K? Muffin was in a mood. K? Agnes winced. Already another contraction. Mild, but so soon after the last. She clasped her hands around her immense belly and took slow, deep breaths until the pain passed. Well, anyway, she said as though Muffin's uncharacteristic viciousness had been adequately explained. This mending ought to cover 
10 more lessons. Maria's face gathered into a frown, like a piece of brown cloth cinched by a series of whip stitches. Six lessons. Ten. Six. Nine. Seven. Nine. Eight. Done, Agnes said. Now put away the three dollars and let's have our lesson before my water breaks. Water can break? Maria asked, looking towards the faucet at the kitchen sink. She sighed. I have so much to be learned. Chapter 7 Clouds swarmed the late afternoon sun, and the Oregon sky grew sapphire were still revealed. Cops gathered like bright-eyed crows in the lengthening shadow of the fire tower. Because the tower stood on a ridge line that marked the divide between county and state property, most of the attending constabulary were county deputies, but two state troopers were present as well. With the uniformed troopers was a stocky, late 40-ish brush-cut man in black slacks and a gray herringbone sports jacket. His face is almost pan flat, his first chin weak, his second chin stronger than the first, and his function unknown to Junior. He would have been the least likely man to be noticed in a 10,000-man convention of non-entities if not for the port wine birthmark that surrounded his right eye, darkening most of the bridge of his nose, brightening half of his forehead, and returning around the eye to stay in the upper portion of his cheek. Amongst themselves, the authorities spoke more often than not in murmurs. Or perhaps Junior was too distracted to hear them clearly. He was having difficulty focusing his attention on the problem at hand. Through his mind, odd and disconnected thoughts rolled like slow, greasy, eye of the hurricane waves on an ominous sea. Earlier, after sprinting down the fire road, he had been breathing hard when he reached the Chevy, and by the time he raced the Spruce Hills, the nearest town, he had spiraled down into this strange condition. His driving became so erratic that a black and white had tried to pull him over, but by then he was a block from a hospital, and he didn't stop until he got there, taking the entry drive too sharply, jolting across the curb, nearly slamming into a parked car, sliding to a stop in a no-parking zone at the emergency entrance, lurching like a drunkard as he got out of the Chevy, screaming at the cops to get an ambulance. Get an ambulance! All the way back to the ridge, sitting up front beside a county deputy and a police cruiser. With an ambulance and other patrol cars racing close behind them, Junior had shaken uncontrollably. When he tried to respond to the officer's questions, his uncharacteristically thin voice cracked more often than not. And he was able to croak only, Jesus, dear Jesus, over and over. When the highway passed through a sunless ravine, he had broken into a sour sweat at the sight of the bloody, pulsing reflections of the revolving rooftop beacons on the bracketing cut shell walls. Now and then, the siren shrieked to clear traffic ahead, and he felt the urge to scream with it, to let loose a wail of terror and anguish and confusion and loss. He repressed the scream, however, because he sensed that if he gave voice to it, he wouldn't be able to silence himself for a long, long time. Getting out of the stuffy car in the air much chillier than it had been when he had left his place, Junior stood unsteadily as the police and the paramedics gathered around him. Then he led them through a wild grass in Naomi, moving haltingly, stumbling on small stones that the others navigated with ease. Junior knew he looked as guilty as any man had ever looked this side of the first apple in a perfect garden. The sweating, the spasm of violent tremors, the defensive note that he could not keep out of his voice. The inability to look anyone directly in the eye for more than a few seconds. All were telltales and none of these professionals would overlook. He desperately needed to get a grip on himself, but he couldn't find a handle. Now here, once more, to the body of his bride. 
Liver mortis had already set in. Blood draining to the lowest points of her body, leaving the fronts of her bare legs, one side of each bare arm, and her face ghastly pale. Her dead gaze was still surprisingly clear. How remarkable that the impact hadn't caused a starburst hemorrhage in either of her exquisite lavender blue eyes. No blood, just surprise. Junior was aware that all the cops were watching him as he stared down at the body, and he frantically tried to think of what an innocent husband would be likely to do or say, but his imagination failed him. His thoughts cannot be organized. His inner turmoil boiled ever more fiercely, and the external evidence of it grew more obvious. In the cool air of the fading afternoon, he perspired as profusely as a man already being strapped into an electric chair. He streamed, gushed, he shook, shook, and he was half convinced that he could hear his bones rattling together like the shells of hard-boiled eggs in a roiling cook pot. Had he ever thought he could get away with this? He must have been delusional, temporarily mad. One of the paramedics knelt beside the body checking Naomi for a pulse, although in these circumstances, his action was such a formality that it was almost harebrained. Someone eased in closer beside Junior and said, How did it happen again? He looked up into the eyes of the stocky man with the birthmark. They were gray eyes, hard as nail heads, but clear and surprisingly beautiful in that otherwise unfortunate face. The man's voice echoed hollowly in Junior's ears, as if coming from the far end of a tunnel or from the terminus of a death row hallway on the long walk between the last meal and the execution chamber. Junior tipped his head back and gazed up towards the section of broken out railing along the high observation deck. He was aware of others looking up too. Everyone was silent. The day was morgue still. The crows had fled the sky, but a single hawk glided soundlessly, like justice with its prey in sight, high above the tower. She was eating dried apricots. Junior spoke almost in a whisper, yet the ridge was so quiet he had no doubt that each of these uniformed but unofficial jurors heard him clearly. Walking around the deck, paused the view. She, she, she leaned, gone. Abruptly, Junior Kane turned away from the tower, from the body of his lost love, dropped to his knees, and vomited. Vomited more explosively than he had ever done in the depths of the worst sickness of his life. Bitter, thick, grossly out of proportion to the simple lunch that he had eaten, up came a dreadfully reeking vomitus. He was untroubled by nausea, but his abdominal muscles contracted painfully, so tightly that he thought he would be cinched in two, and up came more, and still more, spasm after spasm, until he spewed a thin gruel green with bile, which surely had to be the last bit, but was not, for here was more bile, so acidic that his gums burned from contact with it. Oh God, please no, still more. His entire body heaving, choking as he aspirated a piece of something vile. He squeezed his watering eyes shut against the side of the flood, but he could not block out the stench. One of the paramedics stooped beside him to press a cool hand against the nape of his neck. Now this man said urgently, Kenny, we've got hematemesis here. Running footsteps, heading towards the ambulance, apparently Kenny, the second paramedic. To become a physical therapist, Junior had taken more than massage classes, so he knew what hematemesis meant. 
hematemesis, vomiting of blood. Opening his eyes, blinking back his tears just as more agonizing contractions nodded his abdomen, he could see ribbons of red in the watery green mess to gout it from him. Bright red. Gastric blood would be dark. This must be pharyngeal blood. Unless an artery of rupture in his stomach, torn by the incredible violence of these intransigent spasms, in which case, he was puking his life away. He wondered if the hawk had descended in a constricting gyre, justice coming down, but he could not lift his head to see. Now, without realizing when it happened, he had been lowered from his knees to his right side, head elevated and tilted by one of the paramedics, so he could expel the bile, the blood, rather than choke on it. The twisting pain in his gut was extraordinary. Death raptures. Undiminished anti-peristaltic waves coursed through his duodenum, stomach, and esophagus. And now he gasped desperately for air between each expulsion without much success. A cold wetness just above the crook of his left elbow. A sting. A tourniquet of flexible rubber tubing had been tied around his left arm to make a small vein well more visibly. And the sting had been a prick of a hypodermic needle. They would have given him anti-nausea medication. It most likely wasn't going to work quickly enough to save him. He thought he heard the soft whoosh of knife-edged wings slicing the January air. He dared not look up. More in his throat. The agony. Darkness poured into his head, as if there were blood rising relentlessly from his flooded stomach and esophagus. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify. Um, takes like 13 seconds. Leave a review on Podchaser. Copy and paste that in the Good Pods. And copy and paste that in the Apple Podcasts. You can donate to the show at Patreon.com slash Single Simulcast. Or at BuyMeACoffee.com slash SSCast. Or on the Good Pods app. Um, you can uh, go to the tip jar. Thank you all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Um, y'all be good. I'm going to holler you later. Peace. Intro and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan, and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name,